Welcome, welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Towson, and this is the Tech Strategy Podcast. And the topic for today, why GE Digital failed so far. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty important case. I was actually going through this with a bunch of MBA students this week. It's a fairly well-known case. And I thought there were some really great lessons. I mean, because this is like GE. This is massive tech-focused industrial conglomerate that went all in. I mean, this was a 10-year effort with full support from the very top of the organization to go digital, which in their case, really, we're talking about industrial Internet of Things, uh, industrial IoT. And really, in the last year or so, they've kind of walked away from it. Uh, we can, I mean, failure is a bit of a strong word, but I mean, thus far, the first phase of this major initiative didn't work like they thought. Now, what they're going to do next, we'll see. But it looks like they're kind of walking away from it significantly in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of good lessons in that. And I thought that'd be a great case in sort of digital transformation, digital operating basics, moats for digital, things like that. So that'll be the topic for today. Uh, basic stuff. Da, 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 da. For those of you who are subscribers, I did send you out in the past day um, sort of the, the beginning of a deep dive on Alipay Plus, which I think is going to end up being a big thing. And I think I'm pretty much the only person writing about it at this point. Uh, this is, you know, Ant Financial, major IPO, major financial services company. The IPO got pulled at the last minute. They kind of went pretty quiet for the last year or two. And a big part of what Ant was doing was glowing international under Alipay as the first wave. Well, in the past six months, they've rolled out something they call Alipay Plus, which I think is going to be the foundation of their new international push starting in Southeast Asia. Anyways, I sent you part one yesterday. I'll send you part two in the next couple of days, and I'll probably write more about this. I think it's a, a pretty big deal. So that's something to keep an eye on. And if Ant ends up filing for IPO again, which there's been rumors of in the last couple of days, um, that'll be kind of interesting. So anyways, that's uh, what's next. Uh, for those of you who aren't subscribers, feel free to go over to jefftausen.com. You can sign up there, free 30-day trial, see what you think. Uh, other housekeeping stuff, uh, the books are on sale, moats and marathons, uh, ebooks and paperbacks, except for number three, are on Amazon. The paperback for number three, part three, is on Barnes & Noble. There's a bit of a glitchy thing going on there. Anyways, that's available there. And let's see, standard disclaimer, nothing in this podcast or in my writing or on the website is investment advice. The numbers and information for me and any guests may be incorrect. Views and opinions expressed may no longer be relevant or accurate. Overall, investing is risky. This is not investment advice. Do your own research. And with that, let's get into the topic. Now, as always, there's a standard sort of concepts to keep in mind and Really, I guess today would just go under digital transformation, which is, you know, a fairly sweeping topic. This is what companies are doing. I'm, I'm doing consulting in this. Uh, really, been launching in this in the last six months, doing a lot more of it. So yeah, this is pretty common. A lot of retailers, banks uh, are dealing with digital transformation, and you know, industrial. The more operational you go, the more physical you go, digital transformation becomes a lot more difficult. Um, 
you know, it becomes a lot more about, hey, let's just run analytics on all the data we already have in our bank servers. That's very digital. Or media would be the same way. Let's take all our videos and stream them. You are still mostly working in intangibles, software, digital. As you move into the physical world, let's ship packages, gets a little more complicated. Well, as you go into industrial, then it is actually a lot of tangible stuff going on. You're starting to digitize factories, uh, machines, things like that. So one, it becomes a lot slower. It's a much bigger endeavor. And two, it also becomes much more complicated. Um, when you think about digital creatures, most of them are fairly simple at their core. We are sending money. We are sending a package. I mean, the, they are operationally very standardized along a couple services. Well, when you start looking at sort of an old school industrial company, operationally they're very complicated and you're talking about hundreds of different products and services. So it's a much more complicated thing. So within that spectrum, when you start talking about digital transformation, an industrial conglomerate like GE is about as complicated as you can get. Uh, so that's why it's kind of a good case. Now, when we talk about digital transformation, and that'll be the concept for today, which will go under the concept library, I really break this into three levels, which you should be familiar with if you've listened to this podcast. I talk about moats, competitive advantages, right? Warren Buffett land. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read the books. Four bucks, five bucks, whatever it is. Digital operating basics. And then tactics, Right, those are kind of of my six levels of competition, three of them, moats, uh, digital operating basics and tactics. When we start talking about digital transformation of a company, supermarket, media company, industrial company, 75% of what we're talking about is doing the digital operating basics. And I'll talk more about this for GE. 20 plus percent of what we're talking about is building a moat. And then the other five to 10% are about tactics. That really, for me, is what it means to say digital transformation. And I'll put a slide in the show notes that basically say, look, that's how I break it down. So if you're looking for a playbook for digital transformation, that's my playbook. 70, 75% do the digital operating basics. 20 plus percent think about strategy and modes. 5 to 10% think about tactics. And I'll, I'll talk about what those mean specifically for GE. Now, for the GE case, this is really from a Harvard business case. So I can't post it, obviously, because it's, um, you know, you have to pay for them and they're very sticky about their IP and stuff. So I'm just going to talk about main points about GE's transformation effort. But a lot of, I mean, most of this information is coming from a Harvard business case called uh, uh, Digital Transformation at GE What Went Wrong. Actually, it's Ivy, but it was, you can find it under Harvard. Um, so, a lot of the facts you can find there, or you can find it online. This is not exactly scarce information. But, I mean, basically, 2018, 2019, you start hearing about um, various board level, CEO level changes at GE, um, new chief operating officer, Lawrence Culp, gets installed as uh, basically new CEO of GE 2018, replacing John Flannery. John Flannery had only been in that position for about a year. 
Um, and then prior to that, I mean, really, we're talking about Jeff Immelt, for those of you who know the history. Jeff Immelt was the CE and its sort of guiding leader for, yeah, I'm going to say, 14 years. I'll check that. Um, but, I mean, he was really the leading person at GE for a long time. I actually met him, uh, must have been 15 years ago. I was working uh, for Al-Walid, Saudi Prince Al-Walid in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh, and he would always meet with famous people, you know, it was very normal to walk out of my office. This was a kingdom center at the center of Riyadh, the big skyscraper that looks like a lady's razor. Um, although <laughs> Walid apparently doesn't like that analogy. Um, you know, and in the hallway, I don't know, there's, there's Prime Minister Tony Blair, which is a true story. Like I, I literally opened my door one day, came rushing out. He was right there in my doorway. I almost hit him with my coffee. Like it was... It was one of those moments where you open the door and I'm rushing out and like time slows down and it's like, oh my God, that's Tony Blair. One 18 inches in front of me. Oh my God, I'm going to hit him with my coffee. And you, you know, it like slows down. You're like, oh my God. And then for some reason, like the coffee just didn't fly out of my hand, but it was real close and it would have hit him square in the chest. Uh, but that was like kind of a norm. Not well. That day was a little bit unusual, but not an abnormal occurrence. President of the Philippines, Jeff Immelt, um, who was that big? Lots of press coming in all the time. CNN and BBC, and who's the big Maria Batralova? Who's ever the big financial reporters? I mean, it was just a common thing. So, anyways, one random day. You get the phone call. Oh, we're meeting with uh, GE and their people in the boardroom because Al-Walid met Jeff Immelt the night before, which would be a common thing. Uh, we want to talk about doing stuff together. So I come in and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of one to two seats to the right. I'm not the point guy. I'm sort of assistant to the point guy. And there's Jeff Immelt and he's got his whole team behind him. And we actually, you know, started working on ideas to work with GE in Saudi Arabia. We ended up hiring McKinsey and doing work on power plants, water, energy, consumer credit. Uh, it was kind of a big thing. It never really went anywhere. Uh, Kingdom really wanted to do consumer credit stuff. GE really wanted to do power and water, uh, which is not something Kingdom did. But anyways, it was fun. Anyways, he was an interesting guy, fun to talk with, a bit of a difficult company to work with because you, you would meet them in, in Saudi Arabia, I'd fly into London to meet them at the GE office, and literally almost every meeting, it was new people. It was like new vice presidents because you know there's so many executives and they move around so much that every meeting, it was like handing out business cards again. It's like, where's Bob? Oh, Bob's now doing GE Capital. Oh. Where's Susan? Oh, she's transferred. And it was like every meeting, it was like people were new. It was a little frustrating. Anyways, random story. But, okay, so we look at GE. For those of you who aren't familiar, GE is, you know, Thomas Edison's, you know, company, light bulb, invents the light bulb, you know, builds, you know, the first industrial, really research lab that's sort of paired with manufacturing capacity so then they start the process which GE has done ever since and so has Huawei which is like we have a ton of R&D and we have a ton of manufacturing let's stay on the frontier lots of R&D and we will focus on industrial products we will focus on high-tech products and we will focus on products that are growth and that's where these I mean 
Huawei is more focused on telco. GE is more of a portfolio approach where it's got to be industrial, high tech, and growth. And then they're always sort of fine-tuning their portfolio and they do things like power plants and turbines and clean energy and lots and lots of M&A. So anyways, but you know, their business model has always been we sell products, manufacturing-based products, and then we sell supporting services, maintenance contracts, service contracts, and that's been their business model forever. And it's a pretty good business model. And that wouldn't really be relevant to what I talk about. I mean, sort of high-tech, manufacturing, innovation-intensive products, industrial products with supporting services. Well, I mean, Jeff Immel, one of his major initiatives, and he had several, but this was arguably, let's say, top five, was to begin to shift GE, their strategy, their competitive advantage, away from making and selling hardware, which is increasingly becoming commoditized, and towards what we would call smart and connected products. And we see this pattern all over the place. I mean, it's, you know, it's LG making refrigerators, and now they're making smart and connected refrigerators. It's Steve Jobs taking a phone, a mobile phone, which is sort of a dumb device, and making it smart and connected, hence smartphone. And we see this all over the place. You put a little smart and connection in a bicycle, and you get bike sharing. Uh, and we see this all over the place, and some of it is fairly minimal. Let's make a smart and connected toaster. Eh, who cares? Uh, but home products are more smart and connected air conditioners. That's better. Uh, smart and connected cars, that's Tesla's world, but definitely within that whole process of let's take hardware and make it more digital, uh, industrial, particularly high-tech industrial, is a fairly compelling space. And so Immelt starts doing digital and he starts saying, you know, starts talking about things like industrial internet of things. And, I mean, ultimately, he basically said, look, GE ultimately has to become a software company first and then hardware second. Now, you know, I've, I've given talks in the past about digital economics. And when you start talking digital economics, which is a fairly dry subject, also called information economics, you start talking about bundling. You start talking about uh, digital cost structures. You start talking about pricing and versioning. And there's, if you go into my concept library and you'll see all those things listed, look for digital economics. But one of the ones you start talking about is complements, in particular, digital complements. Your smartphone is effectively a piece of hardware, which if you bought it from Apple, you paid for the hardware, and then they gave you a bunch of digital complements for free, which are all the apps. Hundreds of thousands, millions of them, really. And, you know, Apple has always made the decision, we're going to charge people for the hardware and mostly give them the digital compliments for free. And other businesses have gone the other way, like Xiaomi. We're going to basically sell the piece of hardware, the phone, at cost, plus or minus two or three gross margin points. Now they're increasing it. And we will try and make money on the software, the services, i.e. the digital compliments. And one of the reasons this is such a powerful move is if you add a complement to a product, it makes it more valuable. If I am selling hot dogs, hot dog buns are a complement. They make the hot dog more valuable. Mustard is a complement. It makes the hot dog more valuable. 
Uh, a better example would be electricity. If you pay for your electricity bill, there is a certain value to that because it turns the lights on. But when people started to make appliances a hundred years ago, the appliances in your home, even though they're separate products, are complements to your electricity. That's why your electricity bill is an unbelievable bargain. Because you're paying for the electricity, but the value you get from that, from the lights and all the other home appliances, which are complements, make your electricity dramatically more valuable. That's kind of the nature of this game. And obviously you could see in industrial products making turbines, making, I don't know, wind turbines, solar panels, clean energy, power plants, which GE does all this stuff. As you start to digitize, the complements are going to change the value proposition. And you want to be in that. And then there's always a fight. There's always a fight of who is the complement to who. Is the mustard a complement to the hot dog or is the hot dog a complement to the mustard? And what every party in this interaction wants to do, they want to charge as much as possible for their product and then they want all their complements to become cheap commodities. So the hot dog people want mustard and buns to be very cheap commodities. But the hot dog and bun people want the hot dogs to be cheap. Everyone's trying to commoditize the other party. And that's what Jeff Immelt is talking about. We were worried that hardware, which is what they do, is going to become a complement, a commoditized complement to software. So they're moving that direction. And sometimes that is the case. And that's generally, it looks like, the case for a lot of hardware. It's becoming commoditized and cheap. And the power is in the software, which is pretty much... Now, the ex- that's, that, that is a baseline assumption that is mostly true. There are exceptions to that. Tesla is absolutely an exception. It turns out the hardware is so complicated, the batteries, the engine control systems, and it is so tightly integrated into the software, which controls the brakes, the engine, all that that you've basically got one integrated product and nobody is commoditizing anybody. But on smartphones, let's say a typical Android phone, you could absolutely say that, look, it looks like a lot of smartphones are just commoditized hardware and then you stick in the powers in Android and the powers in Facebook and the powers in YouTube. It's not in HTC making a standard handset for a hundred bucks. I can buy a handset smartphone online on alibaba.com I can buy one for $20 and then you plug in Android although you have to use an older version of Android like Android 8 Um, so ML was mostly right okay so that gets you 10 years ago they're talking about all this stuff and people start talking about look we've got to think about this commoditization thing but then there's a And so you can start to talk about what does it mean to have a smart connected turbine, a smart connected uh, solar panel, which they make. That's industrial internet of things. Turbines, locomotives, jet engines, they all have embedded sensors that generate tons of data. That data is then fed into software that then controls them and improves business performance, cost, all of that. Okay, that's sort of one level of thinking about industrial internet of things and 
There's another level, though, and this is what GE started to talk about, which is, okay, everything I just said was sort of like smart and connected hardware, which in practice means you're selling hardware plus services plus software. That's the typical business model. That is the IBM business model. We sell hardware, we sell software that's associated, and we sell services that's together. And that's more and more what Apple is selling now. Uh, They're selling more Internet services, software services, than they used to. Okay, there's another level here, which is let's start talking about ecosystems. What happens when all these devices become connected to each other? Well, that's that's an ecosystem play. That's a platform business model play. Suddenly, we're not talking about uh, Android versus... Suddenly, we're talking about Microsoft operating system where they control everything and they control the connections. Uh, that's... JD and Alibaba smart logistics where you're going to control the connectivity between all the smart and connected devices as opposed to just the smart and connected devices and that's what companies like Google uh, Alexa Amazon that's what they're trying to do and if you go into a typical store and you say I want to buy smart appliances for my home washing machine lights plugs curtains that move on their own you know Every company that makes these things, let's say like if you're in Thailand, True Money, um, they will try and sell their own software. But most people immediately start to ask, is this compatible with Alexa? Is it compatible with Google? Right? Uh, we, we can already see a couple companies that are starting to control the whole ecosystem. Okay. So basically out of GE comes this idea to not just create smart connected products, but to create a platform which they call Predix, 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 P-R-E-D-I-X, that would go head to head with Amazon, Google, IBM, Microsoft, SAP, and this would be the operating system for industry. All these things would tie together, all the data would flow, The company that was more widely used as an operating system would have better data, would have more interoperability. Um, You know, that's what they really wanted to do. And they thought, since we are already one of the largest industrial companies in the world, we already have the machines, we already have the customer base, we're halfway home. We've just got to become the connectivity and the platform for everything. And that's a very common product to platform strategy. I'm literally talking with two companies right now who want to do the exact same thing. We're a major traditional pipeline linear business model with tons of products and tons of customers. We want to become a platform in addition to being a product. So it's product plus platform. And that was the GE play. So I mean, you can look all this stuff and see what GE did, but you're basically, they got a lot of, I mean, this isn't all their sort of analyst calls for the last 10 years. Digital GE, digital GE. You know, we want to be the operating system. The the phrase they would use is we want to be the innovation platform such that app developers start to build on our platform because we're connected to everything and we have all the data. So we want to be a platform for apps that control things in the industrial internet. Okay, well... You've heard me talk about this, five types of platform business models, marketplace, learning. I mean, this would be innovation platform. 
the, the subtype of this I've always talked about is an audience builder. If you don't know what that is, go to the concept library, look up innovation platform. But that's operating systems. This is where you're creating something that other people create upon. Whether it's being an app store, whether it's being Microsoft Windows, whether it's being Android, iOS, uh, GitHub. Uh, there's a lot of types of innovation platforms. Okay, so they want to do this and they're starting with their own customers. But okay, then you've got to overcome the chicken and the egg problem. You know, to get all the app developers, you have to have all the customers using this. But to get the customers, you have to have the app developers. Uh, Huawei is basically trying the same thing right now to build another smartphone operating system, Harmony OS. So whenever I talk to them, my standard question is how many app developers are writing for Harmony OS right now? And it actually looks like they're doing pretty good. They might actually finally sort of break the Android monopoly. Um, anyways, that's kind of the thing. And you can see GE over the past, you know, eight, seven, eight years up until about 2018-19, really struggling to make this work. Uh, because it turns out when you start to become, one, you've got to decide your business model, which I think they did decide, but then you immediately realize saying we want to be a software company and being a software company is very different. You need to have almost a completely different organization with a completely different set of capabilities. All those salespeople aren't going to help you as much. All your engineers who are great at designing turbines are not platform builders. They're not software people at heart. This is why a lot of these car companies are struggling to compete with Tesla because they are not software companies at their core. And they don't have armies of software people. Well, Tesla kind of does because uh, they were founded as really a smart company to begin with. So you get into this situation where you're struggling to build out the capabilities and the organization and that is a, a fairly sweeping problem and I mean GE has just had sort of one difficulty after another in doing this um, their sales force struggled because their sales force was all about selling products to B2B customers suddenly now they're trying to woo developers which is something like Microsoft is very, very good at. But you kind of, it's almost like you're doing software developer kits more than you're doing meetings with people buying lots of turbines. Uh, you got to get users because you're building a platform. It's all about users, engagement, and the resulting data. Um, they had to retrain their sales force. Customers didn't have a huge amount of enthusiasm because even though it sounded good from your side that this is going to be the keys to getting us to be a platform well from the customer side if I'm buying turbines wh why does a software service package why does that make my world better is this a 10x product that is 10 times better than previously you need, you need a killer use case. You need, you need to get adoption from existing customers. It's got to be awesome. It can't just be okay. Um, anyway, so long list of issues that go forward. Um, fast forward to the end, about 2018, 2019. Gee, eh, who knows? I mean, we'll see what they're going to do next. But you know, this was the central component of the transformation of the company, GE Digital. And they basically stopped talking about it. 
and they said we're going to sell it and then they said we're going to spin it off and it just sort of I think they ended up spinning it off. I mean, it just sort of got pushed to the side. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And I think it's a great case in how difficult this can truly be. And I'll give you my explanation for what I think really happened. But but let's just sort of simplify the situation dramatically. And let's say, look, basically what really happened here was they wanted to become a software and a data technology company. Launched in 2011, major commitment from the top of the organization, capital reorganization, highest level of buy-in from the CEO. Their strategy, we need to shift from an increasingly commoditizing hardware to more smart and connected and higher modern products. We need to become more agile. We need to adopt a decentralized organizational structure, something you'd see at like Microsoft or Amazon. We need to go beyond that to a product strategy, I'm sorry, a platform strategy. Everything I just said, that wasn't enough. We need want to go further. We want to build an industrial IoT and ecosystem. We want to be a platform first. And within that platform, we would like to sort of control the technological standards for information exchange. That's basically a standardization network effect. We want to be the connective glue that not just we use, but all industrial companies use and all customers use. So, I mean, that's like three levels of strategy there. Going from products and services to smart and connected product services and software. Going to a decentralized, agile organization. We'll call that level one. Level two beyond that, we want to go from product to platform. That's another level of strategy. And then level three... We want to become the technological standard for the industrial ecosystem, which is basically a massive network effect like Microsoft Windows, and that's winner-take-all, probably. So that's three levels of strategy there, and then the areas they kind of focused on, manufacturing, supply chain, healthcare, retail, seem to me the major ones. Okay, based on that, I'll sort of give you a diagnosis. I just sort of defined, okay, digital transformation. What is digital transformation? 75% it's about doing the digital operating basics. I'll put the slide with my digital operating basics, well, not just mine, many people's, in the show notes. 20 That's 70%, 75%. 20% is having a winning strategy, building a moat. Digital transformation is difficult. If you're going to go through all of this, you might as well go for something where you can actually win. Now, I actually think they did that. They had a win. You know, if they had pulled this off, it was a winning play, like in the sense that they would have dominated the market. 20, 25% is strategy, and then 5 to 10% tactics. Okay, so when we, and I'll put all, you know, I'll put the slides in the show notes for those. So the first thing we can look at here is look, this was just tactics. That was the first problem you hear. Okay, you're doing a strategy, you're trying to build. A ecosystem. I mean, forget that. You're just trying to sell smart and connected products. Do your customers want them? I mean, if you're going to get people to buy something new, usually the rule is you got to have a 10x product. You've got to have a product or service that is 10 times better than what exists. Usually that's about being cheaper. That's when people talk, oh, it's a 10x product. Usually it's like it's a lot better and it's a lot cheaper or free. Okay, I mean, and tactics, which is the bottom level of my six levels, you know, my joke is tactics are just do whatever works. 
look, whatever it takes to get adoption, whatever it takes to get usage, whatever it takes to beat your competitors, just do it. That's why the symbol for this, if you look at my little six levels, it's a street brawl. It's a bunch of people slugging each other in the face. You know, you're in this fight in the street. Someone's punching you. Kick them in the chin. Whatever it takes, just back and forth, back and forth. That is tactics. And when they sort of launch, I mean, they didn't have an awesome thing that just took off. Did they have a 10x product? Did they just get adoption? If you don't get that, none of the strategy or digital operating basic stuffs matters because you're not you're dead anyways. Usually businesses sort of start at tactical levels, do whatever works. And then when you get some traction of some kind, you begin to standardize that into your operating procedures. And let's just do a lot more of that. That usually becomes your digital operating basics. So issue number one, they weren't getting any traction. All the strategy doesn't do you any good if you're not getting traction. Uh, Then you sort of get to, okay, that was a problem. And then we start to look at the digital operating basics. And you can basically just run the list and, you know, kind of see where they were struggling. And you'll notice the picture I put for the digital operating basics. For tactics, I put a a street brawl. People just slugging each other randomly in the street. Digital operating basics, the little cartoon I used, was soldiers marching in a line. This is where you take the things that do work which you probably discovered in your tactics, and you standardize them and you regiment them. This is instead of having a gang fighting in the street, you actually have an army that is doing these things systematically. Hence the picture of the soldiers. You know, the digital operating basics, digital operating, DOB1, digital operating basics one, rapid growth at small incremental cost. If you're going to do something in software, do it big because that's one of the things software can do is scale quickly, cheaply, and without constraint. Um, DOB2, never-ending personalization and customer improvements. Digital Operating 3, digital core for management and ops. DOB5, connectedness and interoperability. DOB5 and 6, leadership and management, people, culture, and teams. DOB7, sustainable cash engine. Now, you can see from GE's experience, this is mostly what they were doing. And this is where, even though they talked in terms of strategy, if I was an analyst on these calls, I'd be asking them about, are you getting the digital operating basics in place and working? Apart from adoption tactics, are you building the basics? Forget your ecosystem thing for a while. Just tell me about the basics. DOB6, are you, is your people, is your culture becoming agile? Are you operating like Amazon? Yes or no? Now, actually, if you look at their what they were talking about, their leadership and management seems to have been all in. So they were doing all right there. But their people and culture was, that was a major transition from traditional industrial GE to becoming a software company. And in fact, it might not have been doable. A company this big and this complicated and this ingrained, you may be not be able... I think there is a point at which the company is too big to transform culturally. Uh, they may be too big. Um, so DOB5 seems okay. DOB6, big red flags. DOB7, is there a cash engine because transformation takes a lot of cash? Well, they have their traditional business. So yeah, they're actually pretty good on DOB5, DOB7. Um, really, the problem they were having... Um, DOB6, DOB3. DOB3 is we've got to change our core operations and management behavior into a digital format. 
that was a major issue. And I think, again, a company the size of GE may be too difficult to do that in, that you needed to just take one business unit and do that only. And then DOB4 is about connectedness and interoperability. That's when you start becoming connected to other players in the market, your customers, your supply chain. They talked a lot about that. That tends to come later. It tends what when you start to digitally transform, it's usually DOB three, five, and six. You build the core, you get your management and your teams, and you're all digital. And then when that's done, you then start connecting more extensively with other players. So my first diagnosis of what was going on was the tactics. They just didn't get the traction. Uh, the second was the organizational and capabilities issue, changing the nature of the company to a software company. Um, they really struggled there, and it might be just too difficult for a company this big and complicated. As I said at the starting of this podcast, most digital companies are actually quite simple operationally. Their software is complicated, but you know, Lazada and Alibaba are just doing basic buy-sell transactions. That's all they're really doing. Uh, TikTok, as dynamic as it is, is still just doing simple videos. The products and services and core ops are quite simple. GE is the exact opposite of that. It's incredibly complicated to sell turbines that work with Boeing and Airbus and have maintenance for 20 years and are engineering, you know, frontier-level engineering and you know, so I think that was a problem. Tactics were a problem. The digital operating basics is probably where this thing came off the rails. Third level, last point, strategy. So we move up to the next level. We start at tactics. We go to digital operating basics. I think that's most of the GE digital story. But we can look at their strategy. Now, in here, I think they were actually very knowledgeable. They were pursuing a strategy. Sorry. A strategy that was a bold strategy. If they had pulled it off, they would have become a Microsoft of the industrial ecosystem. Um, I think it was too difficult of a strategy for a company with no digital capabilities or organizational behaviors. I would have told them if they asked, and I'm dealing with an industrial company on this exact question right now. I would have told them, don't think about the ecosystem. Go with a simpler business model like IBM. Sell hardware with services, which you already do, but also with software packages. So we're going to sell this solar panel. You're going to sell the traditional maintenance contract and service contract, but we are also going to sell a subscription to a software product that makes it smarter and better and that's we're not going to digitize and connect the whole ecosystem. We're just going to sell smart, connected products, um, which is kind of what Tesla is. If you buy a Tesla, you have to pay for the Tesla. You can pay for services like maintenance, fix the battery, but you can also buy software subscriptions, such as I will pay whatever it is, like $10,000 at the time you buy the car to get the full uh, autonomous driving capabilities as opposed to the basic autonomous driving capabilities. So it's hardware plus services plus software. I would have done that as the strategy. And then three to five years down the road, if everything's going well, let's start talking about platforms and ecosystems. 
But that's just a very difficult strategy. Anyways, that's kind of my diagnosis. And I think that tees up nicely with the concept for today, which is digital transformation, 70% digital operating basics, 10 to 15% tactic, I'm sorry, 10 to 15% strategy, 20%, 5 to 10% tactics. That's a pretty good approach. Um, they were too much into the strategy and they chose one that was too difficult and the stumbling was the tactics and the digital operating basics. Anyways, that's kind of my take. And that is the content for today. As for me, it, um, <laughs> it's been a bit of a turbulent week, unfortunately, which is a bit ironic because last week was like one of my best weeks ever. And I'm talking about sort of life in Bangkok. And I, I mentioned last week I was you know, going out on the boat on the river with you know, a business school here. It was just wonderful. Anyways, that all got completely uh, wrecked <laughs> about two days after the really cool uh, boat cruise. Um, just visa issues got... Uh, turns out the uh, visa, which was handling... And if, if you're going to live in a country long-term as a foreigner, you generally need a long-term visa. And if you want to work, you need a work permit. And uh, that's, I had that all set up for years, and it was fine. And then that all got... Uh, wrecked <laughs> so suddenly i find myself uh, having to either get a new uh, visa with a different company in thailand or i got a bug out of the country in about two weeks uh, which is nobody's fault it was purely a miscommunication it was set up one way it turns out it was totally no one's fault just sort of a screw up anyways that kind of threw my life upside down so i'm scrambling a little bit this week, talking to companies, talking to universities, talking to the Board of Investment, which is a Thailand thing, trying to put that all together. Um, it'll be fine. It's, it is kind of annoying. Um, this is, this is. if you're curious about sort of, let's call it global nomad living, um, which is awesome, by the way. It's totally like the best. I've been doing it for a long time. There's uh, there's there's basically two tricks to this. If you can pull off the two tricks, uh, two hacks, it all works out really really well. And the two hacks are, um, you want to separate your work from where you live, where you work, where you live. You got to break that connection, because then you can move around. You can live one. You can basically maximize two. You can optimize on, along two different lines. You can optimize your best possible lifestyle in one way, and you can operize, op, optimize your work and earnings in another way, and those become two separate questions. So it turns out living in, let's say, Thailand is awesome, but making money, let's say, in the U.S. or Europe is, is awesome. I mean, you, you, you break the question into two different pieces. It all works out wonderfully. Uh, that's sort of hack number one. The other hack, which is a bit more in the weeds, is uh, you basically set up two to three different residences in different locations. And what that does, if you're curious, is most countries are set up to allow people to visit four to, yeah, four to five months as a tourist per year. It's totally fine. Um, if you stay more time in a country... You will eventually get pulled over by immigration, which has happened to me here in Thailand a couple years ago, where they kind of say, look, you've come into the country like 10 times. What are you doing? Um, because they basically don't want people living somewhere as a tourist. They say, look, if you want to leave here, that's cool. You got to go get a long-term visa, which is what I'm dealing with right now, um, which is totally reasonable. Um, 
So if you have two homes in two different places, you basically stay under that threshold forever and everything. You can, you can live in Japan four to five months a year. You can live in Thailand four to five months a year. You can live in the EU four to five. You also got to think about if you trigger tax residency, which is another, which is not just solely based on time. There can be some other metrics for tax residency, but that's generally the system. And if you do that, which is what I was planning on doing was um, home in Thailand, a home somewhere else, and then, you know, a couple months probably in Rio for a year. That was my sort of life. And then everything works out fine, and I was going to do that next year. Uh, well, it turns out I got to do that next week. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, that's just sort of what happened, which it'll all work out fine at the end of the day. But yeah, my, my wonderful life last week got turned upside down two days later. So I'm I'm uh, I'm booking plane tickets. Uh, looks like I'm going to Istanbul and Greece uh, for probably for July. Um, yeah, if you know anyone that can help out with long-term visas in Thailand, give me a call. I'd appreciate it. I'm talking with the board of investment right now. I'm talking with a couple universities. So I'll see if we can pull that together. Anyways, that's just been sort of my week. It's been a little bit frantic, but um, I, I'm pretty you know not to pat myself on the back. But I'm pretty good at the scramble. <laughs> I'm pretty good at like selling when I need to sell and moving when I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. So when, when life gets a little messed up, I'm pretty good at sort of uh, hustling around and scrambling and putting things together just because I've done it enough times. Anyways, that's me this week. But I hope everyone's doing well. And I hope wherever you are, the COVID thing is all done. Everywhere else, it seems to be done. Thailand appears to be done. Uh, Japan is finally, I think, allowing tourists again. So just a couple countries are left. So hopefully that's all done, which makes my life as a sort of nomadic person much easier. Anyways, that's me. I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Take care, and I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.